I encourage you guys to open up your, your scriptures if you have them in front of you. If not, they'll be on the screen in the back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're getting into our study in 1 Thessalonians for the next um, number of weeks. And um, so we're going to be working our way through this particular uh, book of scripture. I'm, I'm going to read um, from Acts uh, first. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read from Acts just to give us a little bit of an idea of what was going on that really started this church um, in the very first place. And it helps us to know what they kind of went through so that when Paul talks about some of the things that he talks about, we know where he's coming from and, and why he's saying what it is that he's saying. But before we dive into Scripture, uh, let's just go to the, word, to the Lord in prayer and ask him to just direct our thoughts as we dig into his word. Gracious God, I thank you for this day you've given to us. I thank you for um, great worship and song that we've had. Thank you for uh, Natasha from Teen Challenge coming and sharing that ministry and, and the opportunity for us to be able to see as a church how you are changing hearts and lives, that you are transforming people uh, from those who are enslaved to sin and addiction to um, people who love Jesus and want to serve you and desire to share the message of Christ and the saving work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary to people around them. God, we want to thank you so much for what you're doing in that ministry. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would already be stirring in our hearts to be open to what it is that you want to say to us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I've got to ask this question. How many here in this room have actually received a legitimate letter in the mail recently? Not, not a bill, okay, but an actual letter from somebody. So we've got just a few, not a ton. I mean, if you look at it, it would be the vast minority in this group. It is something that we're not necessarily accustomed to so much today getting an actual letter in the mail and reading it from somebody. We get letters an awful lot from our local politician. You know, hey, I want you to know what our political platform is. Hey, an election's coming up, vote for me. Uh, we get lots of letters from, you know, MB Power and our bank, and, but those aren't legit. We don't get so many letters from people today where we sit down and we hear about how they're doing and they're asking us how we're doing and so on. I won't ask you to raise your hand when it comes to this question, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. How many of you have received a Dear John letter? That You don't have to actually put your hand up for that. But many of us have heard of that kind of letter. Um, it's commonly believed that it was coined by Americans during World War II. Apparently, during uh, the time from 1880 to 1823, the most common name given to young men was John. And so by the time World War II arrived, a lot of guys who were serving in the militaries, their first name was John. And oftentimes they would receive letters from their significant uh, other, their wives or their girlfriends, and generally they would you know, have the affectionate language of like, dear Johnny or dearest John or simply darling. And so servicemen that received a note that had the curt dear John would instantly know what was coming next. And one of these such letters was actually published in a newspaper in Rochester, New York, and it began this way, dear John, 
I found someone else whom I think the world of. And then it just kept on going. Nobody wants to get one of those kind of letters. The interesting thing is that this letter that Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica is the direct opposite to that kind of letter. Where a letter like a Dear John letter would say, hey, I'm communicating with you because I don't love you anymore. I'm moving on. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church that he has great affection for. He loves this group of people. He desires to see them grow in their relationship with the Lord. He, he loves hearing what's going on in this particular church. If you read 1 Thessalonians and you compared it to, say, some of the other letters that Paul writes, I'll give you an example. If you read Galatians, a letter that Paul writes to the Galatian church, he loves that church, he loves those believers in that church, but the tone is vastly different in that letter than it is in this one. If you read 1 Corinthians, the tone of that letter is vastly different from the Apostle Paul than this particular letter. And the interesting thing is that Paul doesn't really know this church all that well. And yet he has deep appreciation and affection for them. I want to just read from Acts chapter 17, the first 10 verses, just so that you know how this church began. It says this, after they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue and as usual Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a large number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some of the wicked men from the market and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them and bringing them out in the public assembly. And when they had not found them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, "'These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too.'" And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the crowd and the city officials heard these things, and they were upset. And after taking a security bond from Jason and from the others, they released them. And as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. This is, or these are the events that really started this church of believers. We read through these things sometimes in the book of Acts or in other passages of Scripture, and we sometimes don't really think about what's going on here. It says that Paul reasoned with them in the synagogues for, synagogue for three Sabbaths. Literally, Paul was in this city interacting with these individuals, Seeing people come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior over three weeks, and that's it. He was there for three weeks, and then he was never there again. He literally saw a church start in three weeks amidst major persecution, and then was literally helped to get out of the city before somebody did something drastic to him and Silas. 
And that was the extent of his interaction with this particular church. He didn't spend years there. There are some churches where Paul spent at least a couple, three years there, interacting with people, getting to know them, teaching them the Word of God, seeing them come to know Christ and grow. But this church, he barely knew them. And yet he writes the book of 1 Thessalonians, and he writes with such affection for this particular church. And I think that we see some of the reasons for that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And so I'm going to read these verses just so that we can see how Paul introduces his letter to this particular church of Christians. He says this, Paul and Silvanus, or Silas, Silvanus is just the Greek name for Silas, just so you know, and Timothy, and we'll mention why Timothy is included in this in a few minutes. But these three guys are the guys that are addressing this letter to the church, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We thank God for you, for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of God the, and uh, of, in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, that you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So that's the, the introduction. That's, that's kind of the, the, the very beginnings of this particular letter to the, the, the Thessalonian church from Paul. And in this particular passage, there, there's a lot packed in here, and we could spend an awful long time actually just kind of unpacking a lot of the things that Paul says in here. But really, I, I want to focus on just kind of two or three groups of three things. Now, I don't have nine points, so don't worry about that. But I do want to kind of hone in on three groups of three things that Paul says, and I really want to just kind of end on three important things by way of application for us that this church is an example for. And so really, our series is called Dear Church, but today's message is really, uh, could be titled, What Every Church Should Be. Now, I'm not saying that our, this church is not that. I'm just saying that as we look at the, the church in Thessalonica, we can look at an example for us to follow of what a church should look like. And so I want to kind of just dive right in. First of all, Paul emphasizes the evidence of the salvation that these Christians have. And it shows itself 
in three things. Now, I had the privilege of having a message at um, a wedding just recently, a wedding that we'll actually announce at the end of the service so we can celebrate together, so I won't take away from that. But in my message, I talked about these three things. Now, in, in a wedding, you generally hear of uh, faith, hope, and love talked about at the very end of, of a section in First Thessal- or First Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter, and we read it a lot at, at uh, weddings. And as I said in that message, and I'll say here, that Paul actually says those threefold virtues four different times in the New Testament. This passage is actually one of them. It's interesting that to the Corinthian church, Paul says, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. And he said that because he was talking to a church who was divided, who really struggled with loving each other. Here, Paul uses these three words, but he says it in a different order. He says this, In verse 3, he says, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. He actually says it in a different order. And he does that because he wants to end off with hope, which is something that he was really trying to hone in on for this particular church. But when Paul's talking about, hey, how do I know that you guys are saved? How do I know that you're a church? How do I know that you are believers? There's evidence of your salvation. And what's the evidence of your salvation? He hones right in on it. He says, your work produced by faith. He says, as a church, you are doing the work that God has called you to do. And you're doing it because you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ when you heard the message of the gospel. Whenever we hear work and faith kind of in the same sentence, sometimes we get a little bit nervous as evangelicals. Because we, we want to make sure that we hone right in on the fact that we, we don't have faith based on our works. We don't want a works-based salvation. We want a faith-based salvation. We know how important it is that it's not anything that you or I do that earns our way to God. It's all of God and none of us. And so sometimes when we hear work and faith in the same sentence, we get a little bit nervous. But Paul makes it very clear, and he reiterates it in verse 4, and we'll get to that in a minute. He says, look, I know what your salvation is all about. I know who is responsible for your salvation, and it's God. But your salvation produces works, works that God has ordained for you to do. Makes me think of two different passages in Scripture that I want to read to you, ones that we're very familiar with. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says this Paul saying this to the Ephesian church, but it is reflected and evidenced in the Thessalonians. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This church trusted Jesus to save them, not their works, but in trusting Christ for their salvation, what ended up happening is they ended up doing the work that God called for them to do. They served one another. They served people in their community. They met felt needs. They did all the things that they needed to do that God calls for us to do as believers in Scripture. 
In Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, we see this stated again. Titus says this, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But he gets to this, he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by the works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of the regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want to, you to insist on these things so that those who believe God might be careful to devote themselves to do good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Titus says the exact same thing that Paul says. That we're not saved by our works, we're saved by the grace of God. But the good works that we do are the ones that God has called us to do. And this church showed that they were believers in Jesus because they were doing good to those around them. That they were pouring into the lives of the people around them. Not only that, though, he says your labor of love, your labor motivated by love. He kind of ratchets it up a little bit. He goes from work to labor. I know work for a lot of people is a bad word, like that four-letter word that nobody wants to hear. But you know, there's work and then there's labor. There's the intensity, the, the fact that you're doing something that's messy, it's arduous, it's difficult. When I was thinking of Natasha talking about Teen Challenge and their ministry here, you know, the, the, the phrase that kept on coming from my message over and over again to me was labor motivated by love. That's a ministry that's messy, it's difficult, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of love, it takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of prayer takes endurance, takes time. They labored for Christ. They were in the thick of things. They got into people's lives. They walked difficult paths with people. They did it because they loved God. And they had God's love represented in them. I want us to kind of understand a little bit what this kind of love is like. There are three Greek words for love that are used in the New Testament. We have one word for love. There are three Greek words. There's phileo, there's eros, and there's agape. Phileo is that brotherly love that should be represented in the church. There's that eros love, or sometimes we we call it erotic love, but really in the Greek, the most common use of that particular word is the common love that humanity has, which is a love for something desirable. It's a love for gain. And oftentimes when we're physically attracted to somebody, we find that person uh, desirable, and so we have that kind of love. But we can have that kind of love not just... um, romantically for somebody, but a a love for something where we desire to get it. And that's the most common common kind of love that people have. 
That is not the love that's represented here. It's the agape love. It's God's love. And Leon Morris describes it this way, and I want to read it to you because I find this amazing, the way that he writes it. He says this, God loves us not because we are worthy or even as some think because he sees us sees in us possibilities not yet realized. God loves us although he knows full well our complete unworthiness. He loves moreover without thought of advantage for there is nothing that we can bring to him who made all things. He loves because it is in his nature to love. He loves because he is love. Continually he gives himself in a love which is for the blessing of others and not for the enrichment of himself. That's God's love. That's the love that God shows to us. When we trust Christ as Savior, that's the love that God demands and commands and expects that we show for other people. It's the love in the trenches. It's the love that we have for people when they're unlovable. It's the love that they have for us when we're unlovable. When we're gripped by this addiction or when we're gripped by selfishness, it's the love that we demonstrate even in the midst of all of that. And these folks had that kind of love and they labored because they had that kind of love. But thirdly, they had endurance inspired by hope. And it's important for us to understand something. That hope, biblically, is not the hope that our world talks about. Right? When we talk about hope, it's just kind of, a, you know, I, I hope that it's going to happen. I, I don't really, I'm not sure that it will. It's, it's just kind of an aspiration. Biblical hope, however is the kind of hope that is confidence or assurance in and in the expect, expectation that God is going to fulfill the promise that he gives. And these folks endured because they knew the promise that God had given them, and that was eternal life with him. These were people who were acutely aware of what persecution looked like. We, we don't really understand that. We really don't. You probably haven't been connected to a church, and I don't believe that this church went through this when this church founded, where when people came to know Christ as Savior and they started gathering for worship, that you had a mob of people from the community that was going to stir up trouble and try to stop this church from happening because they vehemently disagreed with what we believed in. Now, that does happen in different parts of the world. It certainly is not happening here. But this church experienced that. They came to know Christ as Savior. They began to worship Jesus. And all of a sudden, all these people in the community were intensely angry about that. And they're like, we, we need to stop this. These people are turning the world upside down. We don't want this garbage here. Arresting Jason, one of the leaders in the church, trying to squash that before it even happened. And Paul's saying, hey, remember what God's promised you. I see that you guys are really willing to endure. You guys are going to stick it out because of what God has done in your life. There's three more things that I'm not going to get into too much, but I wanted you to see it as well. And that's just 
the way that they received the word of God. He said that our gospel, in verse 5, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. These folks, the Holy Spirit had already stirred in their hearts that when Paul and Silas arrived and preached the gospel, they were ready to hear the word of God. And they received the word through men. They received the word from God. In verse 6, it says, you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord. They recognized that this was the word of God to them, and they needed to hear it, and that they needed to submit to it. And they trusted Christ as Savior. They received the word from God. And then lastly, they passed that on by example to the people in their community and in the whole region. In verse 8, it says, For the word of the Lord rang out from you. They didn't just keep the word of God to themselves. They didn't just hoard the gospel. They shared the gospel. So I want us to, by way of application, reflect on three things. And again, I'm not going to labor them. I'd love to be able to spend a lot more time on them, but I do want to bring them out. And I want us as a church to consider this. Ask ourselves this as a church. Ask ourselves this as individuals. Number one, are we a gospel-spreading church? See, the Thessalonians were a gospel-spreading church. It says this, for the word of the Lord rang out from you. Okay, it wasn't just this quiet little sound. It rang. It was intense. It was loud. They didn't back down. They didn't hold back. They were ready and willing to share the gospel, the word of God with anybody, not only in Macedonia, but in Achaia and in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Wherever these people went, they were telling people about Jesus. I personally believe that the fact that they were a gospel-spreading church has everything to do with the next two things. Secondly, they were a God-serving church. I believe that because they were a God-serving church, they were a a gospel-spreading church. Why do I think that? Because it says this, In verse 9, for they themselves report. So Paul says, look, we don't even need to say this. Other people are saying this about you. For they themselves report what kind of reputation we had from you. that How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. These people genuinely trusted Christ as their Savior and it transformed their lives. They went from serving idols, whatever it was that, that, that controlled their entire lives, to serving God who ran their life. And because God was doing a work in them, and God was teaching them, and renewing them, and remolding them, and remaking them, and they were seeing that and experiencing that, they were more than willing to share that with everybody else. The problem is, is that we sometimes get wrapped up in our idols And we don't see the work that God's doing in our lives. And so we're unwilling to share the gospel with people because we're not living out the gospel in our own lives. Why would I want to share a message with somebody that I don't really believe is actually doing anything in my own life? Or I'm not seeing the evidence of it. And no, we might not ever encounter a shrine to Athena or Aphrodite or Ares or something else. But I appreciate what Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He writes this, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its shrines, whether it's office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. 
What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mystical proportions in our individual lives and in our society? Natasha was sharing how there are those that are enslaved idols that come to Teen Challenge. They've got addictions that are running their lives, controlling them. And the only way that they're going to be freed from those is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church spread the gospel because they serve God and nothing else. And lastly, they were a Christ-awaiting church. And I firmly believe that because they were a Christ-awaiting church and they were a God-serving church, they were a gospel-spreading church. Are we really awaiting Christ's return? This church that Paul's writing to firmly believed that at any moment Jesus could come back. He says that in the last verse, it says this, to await for his son, excuse me, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. By the way, the word wait here is the only time it's ever used in the New Testament and it means this. It conveys the idea of patient expectation and trust. This church knew Jesus was coming back They were anticipating it. They were patiently waiting for it. And because they knew Jesus was coming back, they knew that it was absolutely important that they shared Jesus with everybody they could meet. To the point where their reputation was, these folks, they're saved individuals. They have received the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. They've turned from idols. They've turned to God. And they're sharing the gospel everywhere they can. They're what every church should be. Were they a perfect church? Absolutely not. Paul deals with some stuff in this book, and we will get to that. But what an example that they've already laid out for us, which begs the question, are we a gospel-spreading church? I believe we are. I believe we can be better. Are we a God-serving church? I think we are. But you know what? It's easy for those idols to creep back in if we're not careful. We need to root those out. Are we a Christ-awaiting church? I think maybe we could grow on that one. We kind of think that we have plenty of time here on earth and really don't think about the fact that Jesus could come back at any time. We say it sometimes, but do we really believe that? Are we the example that we need to be in our community and around the world for what every church should be and what this church was like as well? Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's love for this church, even though he didn't really know them that well. He spent very little time with this group of believers, and yet he had this love for them. A love, I believe, was stirred by your Holy Spirit for them. A love that was common to them because they had trusted Christ as their Savior and they had God's love working in their lives. God, what, a, what an example for what a church should be from this church in Scripture. I pray, God, that we would be here at True Life Church, a church that has this kind of reputation, that we would be a gospel-spreading church, that we would be a God-
serving church, that we would be a Christ-awaiting church. God, if there are areas of sin in our lives that we need to deal with, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir in us a desire to confess that sin and be right with you. God, if we need a boldness to share the gospel, I pray, God, that first and foremost, we would make you the priority of our lives, that we would make sure that we have you front and center in our lives, that you would be doing an amazing work of transformation in our lives that stirs us to want to tell other people about what Christ can do for them. God, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close with our final song.